I'm taking just a brief moment to tell you about Anchor, which is the platform that I am using to record my podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free. And who doesn't want free? There are also certain tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your iPhone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So please just download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and have fun doing it. Hello, beautiful people. This is Christy with Life Struggles, and today we're going to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. My guest today is John. He's going to be giving his side of what he went through and his struggles. So welcome, John. Thanks, Christy. Hi. Hi. So tell me how this all began and when you were actually diagnosed and your story. For me, the struggle struggle started... Uh, when I was in service, uh, I entered service March 2001. Uh, I went in as an 11 Charlie, which is a mortarman. Uh, we're up on the front lines with the other grunts, but we stay back a little ways. I was in my barracks room whenever 9-11 took place, and we deployed... November 19th, 2001, to Afghanistan. Uh, we ended up being in Jacobabad, Pakistan, for up until the beginning of March. And then we went into our first operation. And for anybody that followed the war, it would have been Operation Anaconda. And we set up into a blocking position. And that morning, late morning, we had a thousand pound J dam come in on us and a J dam is a guided thousand pound bomb. Uh, it's size of small desk. It's of course, thousand pounds worth of explosives. And I don't know the exact kill radius on it, but it's rather large. And with where it hit was directly in the center of our company. But for some unknown reason, it did not blow up. Okay, so, like, where did it come from? Like, from a plane, or was it shot at, or... Because we don't really... It would have been dropped from a plane, because with where we were set up on our blocking position was actually a mile away from the objective. And we were at between about 8,500 feet above sea level, and... The objective was a mile in the mountains above us, so that was probably closer to ten or eleven thousand. So, is the objective the the words that you're using for that? Would that be like where it was coming from? 
the for us that would have been where the bombing was taking place. Uh, there was okay. people, Taliban, that was in dug in place up there because they had a tunnel network, and they had uh, were dropping bombs on that specific area for days uh, afterwards. The after because it had been about probably eight or ten hours worth of bombing at that point whenever the bomb came in on us. They started at night, and it went in, you know, throughout the day, continued on all day. But all we did was pick up our stuff and move about a 1,000 meters further away and reset up our blocking position as if nothing happened, uh, and which that's, that's the only choice that we had to do. We, we had to complete our mission that we were set out because it was multiple units and each unit had a very specific uh, objective that they had to do in mind for the, the larger you know, picture of what was actually taking place. And what was actually taking place was they were running uh, Taliban figures out of the mountains so that we could capture them. Okay. A lot of information there. Keep going. Uh, on that, that original mission for us was supposed to be four days. Uh, it ended up taking eight days because of bad weather. And on the eight, ninth day, the helicopter pilots uh, with the Chinooks come in to get us, even though it was bad weather. You know, we had been out of food for several days, and we had a resupply drop, but it was for water and socks, no food. Uh, but when they picked us up, there was four helicopters that my company flew out on, and I was on three of four, and we were flying what they call nap of the earth, and it's at a how the terrain is. If the train goes up or down, you're staying, you know, a couple hundred feet above that. And so you're constantly going up and down. Okay. And in the mountains, of course, there's, you know, greater areas. And we were coming up over the mountain and wind gust, because it was storming, ended up taking our Chinook and making it go straight up. So a Chinook, like a helicopter? It's the double-bladed helicopters that you see flying around. Okay. Real loud. Okay. And when they point straight up, the engines tend to die, and they get real quiet. And as I'm sitting, you know, there's 30-some-odd people on this Chinook, and we're all looking straight, literally straight down at the earth. And It's kind of scary. It, it, it was <laughs> scary, but you really didn't have time to process it. But luckily, the fourth helicopter flying by the, the rotor wash, the wind coming off of the rotors from it, got ours to where it was flying or falling flat. And our pilot was actually able to fire the engines back up and we did not crash. That's amazing. So in a eight day period, I had to bomb and that, uh, but didn't have time to process any of it because you in all of that, you just, you had to go do your next mission, then your next mission and your next mission. So you really didn't have time to sit and think about what you had done. And 
So all, all of that uh, builds up inside of you. because. So when did you know then that those two particular incidences might have been part of your PTSD? It was years later because uh, ended up doing, we had another mission during that deployment. Uh, we came home June of 02 and then we immediately started prepping for our next deployment, which was in February of 03. The, again, not much downtime to sit and think about it because we, we were training just like we were doing missions during wartime. And so it was almost immediately that I was, you know, back over. And there, when I was home and what little interaction that I had with family at that time, it would have been, you know, fall, summer, fall of 02 that when I first noticed that they were telling me things as, you know, you're different, you know, you just act different, uh, you know, things like that. But at that time, I was, uh, it's because I'm in the army now and, you know, it's, I'm different. Yeah. I'm more disciplined. I'm not the lazy kid that I was before. And, and I wasn't a kid because I was 26 when I went in and for army, that's an old man. I mean, you're for the army. Yes. And, and especially infantry because it is the physical demands on the body and, it didn't take me long to realize what they meant by all that. It, it, the infantry is a young man's game. Okay, so let me stop you right there. Um, I would like to go ahead and, first of all, explain to everybody that um, post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of people think is just um, war-related, military-related. I, I just want to clarify that it can be any traumatic experience in your life. So I'm going to briefly read to you um, what I found on Mayo Clinic, just to give a description, and then we'll let John continue with his story, because I'm pretty sure there's some stuff in there that has added to his PTSD. Okay, so... Anxiety and flashbacks triggered by a traumatic event is the biggest overview that they give from post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a disorder in which a person has difficulty recovering after experiencing or witnessing a terrifying event. The condition may last months or years with triggers that can bring back memories of the trauma accompanied by intense emotional and physical reactions. Symptoms may include nightmares or unwanted memories of the trauma, avoidance of situations that bring back memories of the trauma, heightened reactions to anything, anxiety, depression, and the treatment includes different types of trauma-focused psychotherapy as well as medications to manage the symptoms. Does that sound pretty good? It, absolutely. Okay, and that came from mayoclinic.com. Okay, so let's go ahead and proceed. 
for after our second or first deployment, again, they say we, we prepped the trained again so that we could go to Iraq. I was in, we are original deployment there was 12 months. So that would have been February 03. And we were, everything was going good. And we were in Talifar, which was more in Northern Iraq. And that's kind of where our base of operations was. And for me at the time, it was July 4th, 2003, and I had just re-enlisted for my second three-year term up at Saddam Hussein's palace in Mosul and got back home, back to our base the next day, July 5th, and it was in mid-afternoon by the time I got back, and my CO brought me into his room that he had and told me the news that I had lost my daughter. Uh, my wife back home, she was full term, uh, was expected at any time. And so with that news, it was pretty devastating to me. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's a tough thing. It, it, absolutely. They got me on a plane as soon as I could to come back home. It was still took me three days. Uh, you know, in the meantime, my wife still continued to carry our child, waiting for me to get back home. And so then July 9th, we ended up having her. And so then, of course, we went into funeral mode and but luckily I had my brother he stepped up and took care of all them arrangements so that we didn't have to worry you know have that extra stress on us at that point in time uh we could focus on other things and it it was still stressful but it was also nice to have a little less little less burden sure so I I just want to interrupt you a minute and um, what what so what was the time frame that she had to keep the baby inside until you came? How long from Three the time days. that she found out? Three days, because for her, actually it would have been four days. I'm sorry, four days. Okay. And the reason I ask that is because I I know from past experience with my girlfriend and going through it with her that it can be very dangerous on the person, too. Yes, absolutely. So It was a, a risk. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I was home on leave, the, the original leave that I was given was 14 days, and that was from the time that I left my company. And it took me three days to get home, so I only have 11 days to process this. And... So they don't like just fly straight through, like stop in New York and then New York to, no? No, there was, I had to wait for a flight to come out of Mosul. And so it was a little bit different. It, it, not as many flights as like here, you know, domestically. And so, and plus I had to, I went to, through Saudi Arabia and then I flew home. Okay. That's the way, on a commercial airline at that point. And... 
So when I was home, uh, me and my wife drove back down to Fort Campbell and sought a chaplain for some, you know, some of our grief, but mainly to have him on our side to ask for an additional 14 days of leave so that I could try to process. So where was that at? Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, six hours, well, five hours from here. So you didn't get all the way back to, where were you at the time of Afghanistan? Or no, I was in Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. So you didn't go all the way back there and then get a chaplain to talk to and then come back. You, okay. No, I, I so was. So you were in the States. Yes. Still. Okay. And with a little bit of fighting from the chaplain, you know, he's fighting on my behalf. Okay. I was granted another 14 days. Uh, didn't please my chain of command, but. I figured it was the least that they could do for me. I'm a little surprised that they wouldn't know that or understand that. May, maybe that in different uh, classes it might have been, but for infantry, it was. I don't. I guess we were expected to not have emotions and you know things like that because to. To be hurt in any way or, you know, in, or to go to sick call, as we called it, to go see the doctor because you're hurting, uh, quickly, you could quickly get labeled a turd and just because you're hurting. Now, is that an old-fashioned term? The, the, that's a, it's very old-fashioned. Uh, that's probably the cleanest way that I could put it. Um, and, and I experienced that in my military, my five years that I was in, but it was more towards the end. And so would that be more from other men in the platoon or from higher up? Higher up. Okay. Definitely higher up. So your your guys that were in the platoon with you, were they supportive? The yes. The four I was headquarters and for us, that's the first sergeant, the company commander, the company XO or executive officer, and the supply sergeant. And then there was only the for the mortars. There was six of us, so we were very limited, you know, very small compared to a platoon. Okay, we don't know what a mortar is either. Uh, Saving Private Ryan has them, uh, but in for Tom Hanks, he actually throws them by hand. First he bangs them on the ground and then throws it by hand and it's totally wrong. But they're <laughs> kind of hard to, I don't know how to explain them. I mean, it's kind of similar to a big firework, okay. uh, the big mortar fireworks, the same concept, but. Cause you know, like this, my, my building here is called a brick and mortar. Okay. Yes. Right. So there's, Two different definitions of a mortar there. Right. Yeah, this, you know, <laughs> the, there, there's different sizes of mortars. There's, for me, I was uh, considered a company asset. And the company asset is a 60 millimeter mortar. Uh, everything in the army and everything in the service is metric. Uh, sometimes, so it's hard for Americans to understand that sometimes. But every, everything was metric. To a general idea of a round for a 60-millimeter mortar is about the size of a 16-ounce soda. That was about the size. They were a little bit longer, but they had five pounds of explosive in them. 
and we could shoot them two and a half miles. Okay. I just found a definition so we can understand when he's saying mortar here. Um, it says a short, smoothbore gun for firing shells, technically called bombs at high angles. I should know that. I used to know the definition, the technical definition to where I could spew that information. But That's okay. I, know I, I know just that. want to make sure everybody, you know, you're talking way above our head because, of course, we haven't been there. Guys that are going to listen to this that have been there, hopefully we'll share that to people that we know will listen and, and be interested in that. But a lot of people aren't going to understand this Army talk, so I want to make sure that I interrupt once in a while just to let people know so that they understand. So I'm glad I looked that up because I've never heard of that definition besides like my brick and mortar or the mortar that you use when you're making well brick, you know, in between. So, okay. Sorry about that. Go ahead. But the what there's an 81 millimeter and then there's also a 120 millimeter and but they were different assets as far as the battalion and the battalion was three companies or, or four companies depending on the size uh, but for us a company was about 120 men roughly look how good he's doing you guys he's trying to explain now and that's so nice for each platoon we had we had three platoons plus headquarters platoon and that's where the 120 guys because it was about 40 guys per platoon is what they full strength uh and that's for every position that could possibly be filled up because there's various uh, there's riflemen there's grenadiers there's heavy weapons so there's just looking at it you just see a bunch of guys but there's very specific positions in that platoon as far as, you know, what them guys do because in each platoon they had line squads and there was four of them that, and they would be about 15, 10 to 15 guys each. And so that they could all do have separate missions in a bigger mission to accomplish the big mission that we were on. Okay, that was a lot. What was your position? I was a mortarman. And and what does a mortarman do? Simple. The simplest version is we cover the asses of the Bravos. What's a Bravo? That's the frontline guys. The okay, what typical, so you're right what typical behind people frontline. think of grunts. Okay, uh, being we were on frontline, but slightly back. back. Where your comp your company commanders would hang at, they're on the front line so that they can see what's going on, but far enough back that you typically don't have to worry about direct fire. And a mortar is an indirect fire weapon, meaning you don't have to see the enemy to shoot the enemy because uh, you just shoot the area. Well, we can it shoots. Way, way up into the sky, depending on how far away we shot, was usually if it was we were shooting a mile away, it would go a mile up in the air. So it was the for us, our motto was high angle hell, death and destruction from above. So there must be some kind of 
technology behind that so they can kind of see the area which that they're going to be shooting at? Well, that there's something there to be shooting at? All, believe it or not, we had a site that we looked through, mm -hmm. but all we had to go off of is we had two poles that we set out when we initially set up. And we would keep our sight on that pole, on them two poles the whole time. And that allowed us to shoot 360 degrees. And all we needed, because we had computers, very high-tech computers, that one of the Bravos out on the front line, they could call us with a fire mission and tell us their position. We already knew our position. And they could tell us how far the enemy was away. And... We could be we could shoot the enemy by that. The sometimes people called them forward observers. Uh, that's a forward observer. That's their specific job is to for calling in artillery and mortars. That's all you know. Calling for them targets. Whereas the Bravos, they're looking for the enemy, and their secondary job would be to call in that type of stuff. Okay, so I want to go back to when you were home and what you went through with your wife and the loss of your child. So, and I hope that doesn't bring back too much. No, it, it is. Let me know. It, for only, only having the 25 days total to process everything, it, I'm, it, it hurt, but it truly didn't hit me because I, I knew that I had, you know, this date that I had to go back by. And I knew once that date came, and when I mean, I had to go back to Iraq. Mm -hmm. And when I knew that day came, that I couldn't, I couldn't be thinking about what was going back home. And that's kind of tough. You know, and well, especially I'm kind of trying to, to figure out if, if you needed the extra time, then what? If you weren't processing it and going through it, then what were you doing? I, well, I, w I was processing in my in my own way, but in hindsight, I think it would have been better for me to go back at the end of the fourteen days, because then I would have once I got back into the mindset as you know I'm back in the war zone. I couldn't think about being home. At that time, it would have helped me more. I, I still did just that to because I had to block out what was going on back home. I couldn't think about it. I had my had my mission in front of me. I had four soldiers that I had to worry about. So even though you stayed home to go through grieving, you didn't go through grieving. I, I did. I, I did seek some help. Uh, there was a gentleman. Uh, that I got to talk to a couple times, mm -hmm. uh, talk with the, the chaplain that helped me out. I mean, I talked with him a few times, but it wasn't, I definitely wasn't in the mindset that, you know, I needed help because still, again, at that time, in my mind, I was doing fine. There was nothing wrong with me. But that's not the same as grieving a lost child or and and the other thing I wanted to ask is your wife were you like ignoring what she was going through or was were you trying to help her I, I was trying, you know, trying to be supportive you know for her as were well were you able to do that I 
I would like to think I was. Um, you know, she's the only one that could answer that truly. Did she ever say anything to you? We never talked about it. You never talked about no. it? No. You mean it, about how she felt, period, or how she felt about how you were um, helping her? More, more on if I, you know, how, how or if I helped or okay. you know, anything of that. Cause, okay. I mean, there, we had talked on how you know, she felt, and w- which I could only imagine. And, and that's all anybody can do. Because everybody goes through something different. Right. So. And so, you know, so it was, you know, in time, I just had that, you know, brief moment to, to grieve and then went right back to Iraq for another six months. And again, it was fairly free of accidents, uh, bombs. Uh, I was near an IED, uh, but I didn't, you know, didn't take anything. Um, I had buddies that got hurt, that blowed up. No one was killed. Uh, but it was uh, uh, all around a pretty good deployment as far as deployments could go. Uh, but it was after that deployment that my family really started saying that I was different and was definitely not a, a kind person at that point. Um, I had definitely had a lot of anger. Wasn't sure what was taking place, you know, why or anything, but it got to the point where my uh, ex-wife at now she gave me the ultimatum to either seek help or she was leaving. And so I just decided to seek help. And April 2004 is when I was officially diagnosed with PTSD. Okay, so just to, again, ask a question to clarify things. When your wife at the time gave you an ultimatum was this all to do with your behavior or was there other stuff going on too absolutely behavior okay. it was you know my anger i i wasn't physically abusive mm-hmm. but there was definitely verbal abuse going on uh i was would you call it narcissistic behavior Probably. Yeah, I mean, that would be a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, I had a, you know, in the anger outburst, I was destructive, you know, destroying pictures, you know, that were hanging on the wall or, you know, whatever was near. Okay. I had a, enough sense about me to not go after somebody, but Instead, you know, I was, you know, taking it out on inanimate objects, but it wasn't any better as far as for my... And it can be scary to somebody else watching that. It really can. Um, Just for a brief moment, I I want to read, because next week I'm actually doing a podcast on grieving and going to be interviewing uh, two people that have gone through quite a bit of grieving. Uh, 
But with John sitting here, I just want to list five stages of grieving, and we'll see which one of those he went through, or if any of them or all of them. So we've got denial, anger, uh, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And that's the framework that makes up learning to live with the one we lost. You, those are the things that you go through to, supposed to go through, to get through. And there is no specific time frame. Everybody is different. I'm not reading that. I'm just telling you from experience. And there was one more thing. Um, what is the hardest stage of grief? And it says you may go over the death multiple times in your mind, which now they're talking about death. And I don't know if that's something that you really did with a, an unborn child. There's a little bit oh, of difference, even though I think your wife would have went maybe through a little bit more because oh, when you're carrying a child, she absolutely you have, did. yeah. You have all that, but I'm not minimizing the fact that you still had connection. That was your child. Um, I did a lot of bargaining. Did you? So I saw you thinking, by the way, he's here with me in person, which we don't get to do very much. So, um, But I, I saw you thinking, so why don't you explain what you feel like the bargaining is? It, for me, it was why I and if there was at the time we did not have specific answers so it made it much harder uh, we only knew that her umbilical cord was twisted mm -hmm. and so she basically suffocated and so it was bargaining you know why of well if this could have happened for me I would have gladly you know given my life to save hers. Sure. And that's and and what I'm reading here um, is that the bargaining phase goes hand in hand with guilt. The guilt was of, is what did I do wrong? There. What why if I was there would have things been different? Yep. And I'm sure your wife at the time went through the same thing. So okay. Let's let's go on. Um, I just like to stop and clarify stuff. So, you okay? Yeah. I, okay. The it, it was the you know, like I said April of two thousand four when I got the official diagnosis, and that's I, I guess for me when reality came crashing down because at that point I was still in denial that there was anything wrong with me. I was happy with where I was, or I thought I was happy with where I was at. And, but it wasn't until I started seeking help and I got lucky off the bat and got an old lady that told how it was. And so she made me realize real fast and had to get rid, had to check my ego at the door and for an infantryman, that's hard because we are all ego. And 
So at first, that was probably the toughest thing for me is checking my ego at the door and being real. And But that was the best thing that could have ever happened. Okay. So first of all, there's there's three factors here. Number one, um, I think your wife should be applauded for even giving you that ultimatum, which I'm sure would have been hard to do and probably felt like that was her only choice. Um, then, then I think you need to be applauded for accepting it because a lot of people given an ultimatum will deny it. It'll make them even matter. Um, but whether you did it for yourself or for her, it doesn't matter. You still made the choice to do it. That was you. Okay. Um, and so I think you deserve that. And then thank, I'm going to say God, um, whoever that you had a counselor that was good for you because that's really hard to find the right match. And it sounds like she was really good for you. Absolutely. Okay. So I those three factors right there were a big part of where you are today. I'm thankful, very thankful for her giving me that ultimatum. Because I've, you know, families told me one thing. She was telling me one thing. And, you know, it may, finally made me, well, maybe there is something wrong. And, but... It, that that was the biggest thing. Whenever she gave me that ultimatum, that's what. Well, maybe there is something wrong. And so, so do you feel like you did that for the marriage or for yourself? It, it or, was or for both. It was more for the marriage because mm -hmm. I didn't want to give up. Uh, but I mean, there was definitely part of it for me. Because if there was something wrong, that I, I definitely wanted to get it taken care of because I wanted to try to save my marriage. Okay, people. And that's the most important thing here is had he not finally recognized something and was able to say, okay, I'm open to this, he still wouldn't be where he's at today. You have to be able to open yourself up to that. And to acknowledge it. And so it sounds like that's what you did. Being open has absolutely helped me and grow in ways that I would have never thought. And in the way that it's been brought about, again, and without, because I went, I've been, it's been years since I've been to therapy, but I went for a solid eight years. And like weekly, monthly? The, it was weekly for the longest time, mm -hmm. and then it, you know, went to monthly. Mm -hmm. And I stayed at monthly for years and years. And about about six years ago now, I lost my psychologist because she was able to take a better position and uh, tried different, you know, different ones. And I just haven't meshed with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you briefly talked on mm -hmm. that. It, it is all about. When you're talking your deepest secrets of being comfortable with who's sitting across that desk. And I was blessed. Uh, and like I say, that first lady, if it wouldn't have been for her, I don't don't know where I would be at. Because it could have been a bad experience. 
and I could have said, yeah, I'll screw this. And mm-hmm. hard, only hard to say, I don't know, because I, I just know my path and it hasn't been an easy one. And it hasn't been until recently that it's gotten better because I, and it's been six years now that I've divorced. I remarried, but for my problems, it definitely helped destroy my first marriage. Uh, there was other things, but for what I was going through, it, there was, I, I couldn't help myself. So therefore I couldn't help the marriage. And that was the tough part of realizing that there was something wrong with me. So did your first wife ever go to counseling with you? There, We did a few joint counseling sessions, but it was majority of the time just me. And that was by my choice, more so. Because it would have been interesting to have both of you at least every other time. So she had her input because still she's looking at a different side than what you're thinking you're going to. Right. And, and that's just things, you know, now that I'm in a better place that I can look back on and mm-hmm. see, you know, okay, I wish I could have done this different or mm-hmm. done that different. And, but it's, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, I, I know I'll never be cured per se, just because the, the things that get me is ever evolving. Uh, I, I still don't forget about the things that's happened. And at the time, I didn't think they were traumatic. But my brain, you know, has thought else what, you know, else. And the only thing that I truly thought was traumatic was the loss of my daughter. And a little towards my the end of my military stint. Wasn't traumatic, but I, I, I didn't like it just because of how things went. But... It was with what I was going through at my worst time of struggling with the PTSD and, and cause April, I got out April, 2006. And even during my struggles that I ended up going AWOL for two and a half months, three months. Did you get in trouble for that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, and did you turn yourself in or did they come after you? Yes, but as a little both. The, I turned myself in, but they came and got me. Any, you know, the, the local cops. After did. you turned them in, mm-hmm. after you turned yourself in, yep. I mean. and and I was in a real bad place then, and because I, I was actually homicidal at that point, and so homicidal or suicidal? Homicidal, and just because of my chain of command and things that I was going through, and they weren't being supportive. It was more uh, selfishness on my part, Mm -hmm. but at the time I wasn't seeing it that way. And so I, I, luckily, I guess I I chose to go AWOL. And, but. How'd you do that, by the way? Just didn't go back. So you were on leave. Absent without leave, yes. <laughs> well, wait, but you couldn't get absent to begin with it unless they got you back home. Well, no, I this was I was in the states and 
I just, because I had come back home and just, I was on leave temporary, a weekend pass. So that's what I'm saying. And then I just so, didn't go back. Right. So you were actually on a leave and so, didn't go back. Right. Okay. Um, do you feel like you have any other disorders along with that that can contribute to everything that you've been going through? I, I've never been diagnosed with anything. Uh, I often wonder uh, just because of some of the, you know, some of the things that I've done, uh, I, I, maybe it's more, you know, maybe things are more traumatic to me than what I think they are. Mm -hmm. And, but I don't know. So let me briefly, I'm going to, I'm going to list a few of the related conditions that can go along with PTSD. And then you can tell me if you feel like you've had any of these uh -huh. or do have. Maybe you didn't have anybody look for them even. I don't know. So bipolar disorder is associated with episodes of mood springs, ranging from depressive lows to manic highs. Mm -hmm. Do you have any of that? Nope. No. Okay. Uh, clinical depression, a mental health disorder characterized by persistently depressed mood or loss of Interest in activities causing significant impairment in daily life. I, I struggled through uh, a real bad depression. Uh, we tried different medications, uh, you know, antidepressants, um, different things like that. And for me, it was, there was probably five or six different ones that we tried. And I didn't care much for any of them. But, because I was severely depressed. Uh, I had episodes of sleeplessness, uh, day, you know, days on end. Um, so I was taking sleeping pills uh, that were actually an anxiety medication, but the side effect that was sleep. So that one would put me to sleep, and then I had another one that kept me asleep. And I struggled with that for about four or five years and that's it's been about six years since that's been away I still have occasional sleeplessness because uh, I I'll get stuck on something uh, will get me worked up and do you overthink it then I, I don't know that it's overthinking but it, and I mean it probably is I, I don't you know, look at it as overthinking, but it probably is overthinking just because I can't let it go. And so, you know, the definition of overthinking, right? But, but it's also, it can be a good thing for me too. It, like if I'm trying to solve a problem, not if you, not if you don't go to sleep though, if something keeps you, if some kind of something, any, any subject keeps you from your daily activity and from going on to the next not going to sleep at all, that's overthinking it. I didn't. So you probably are a little I, bit yeah, on certain things. Um, the other is obsessive compulsive disorder. I, the, for a lot of me, it was having to be in control of things, uh, regardless of what it was. I, you know, it was kind of, you know, in a, control your own destiny type thing. 
And that's where I've had to learn to let go. Uh, just because, and, and I think that's where, for me, the helicopter comes in, the bomb comes in, because I had no control over that. And even though nothing bad happened, the, I was thinking back, it did scare me. There, there's no denying that, that it did scare me. But yeah, yeah, you didn't process that at the time. So um, the way they're describing obsessive compulsive disorder, though, is excessive thoughts that lead to repetitive uh, behavior. I, I, I'm familiar with it, but yeah, I don't have to do anything like that. So nothing of that. And then schizophrenia. Anxiety disorder. Anxiety, yes. The, I, that is the has been a big struggle for sure. Now, now, do you think you had that before any of this ever it, happened? I often wonder. I, I thinking back, I don't think that I did. Mm -hmm. But in the looking at it now, I, I don't know. I can't pinpoint where it came into play, but it definitely that has been a big struggle. Okay. Another one. And I know quite a few people with PTSD that have this, but agoraphobia, that's, um, fear of places and situations that might cause panic attacks or helplessness or embarrassment. The, in the beginning. Absolutely. So you try to stay away from that stuff. And that, that is something these last six years, solid that I have worked real hard on putting myself in uncomfortable positions just so in my current life helps me tremendously with that. So that's what I was going to ask you. So you have somebody, for instance, um, I'm just going to try to think up something here. If, if you were as in a place with a whole bunch of people and all of a sudden you got panicky you had somebody that could take you quietly out of that situation. Yes. And, and oftentimes what she's able to do is just talk to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can focus in on her and we just talk. About anything or and about the situation? Sometimes the situation. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, just anything just to get my mind off of the situation. Uh, but oftentimes you know, I try to share with her what I'm feeling. That way, she knows exactly what's going on. And now, is this something that you learned in counseling? Yes. The, okay. I, I continue daily, still to this day, I continually use what I have, was taught in, in my counseling. Good for you. Because it's all coping mechanisms, and without them, I couldn't cope. Sure. And, and that's what... I'm, you know, one of the things that I'm thankful for, because I would have never, the things that I've been taught, I would have never looked at life that way during, you know, the stressful situations. And now I can. And without counseling, I wouldn't have this, you know, view on life. Attention deficit disorder. I wonder about it sometimes. I've never been diagnosed with it just because of how I can be. But you could have had that. Before, I mean, like, right. I, I think probably 
more than three quarters of the population has it. So, um, okay. And then we already said generalized anxiety. Um, alcohol use disorder. For me, I didn't, I never worried about alcohol. I did do some drinking when I was still in the service. Uh, but that was in the beginning, you know, more towards the beginning and when I was still in denial somewhat. Uh, since now, I, I rarely drink, but that more stems from growing up with an alcoholic father and seeing what it did sure. to him and the family and me not wanting to do that to mine. Now, just out of curiosity, did any other of your family members happen to have PTSD? Not that I'm aware of. No? Okay. Did any of them, you, well, you said your your dad drank? Yeah. But was he an alcoholic or just a drinker? Yeah. He, well, I, by clinical definition, he was an alcoholic. Okay. I, he There's was, a lot of different types of alcoholics. So. Yeah. Every Friday, Saturday night, it was, yeah, he was drinking the whole time. So... Was it a social drinker, though? I, I, you know, it probably would be had been considered because a he was drinker. able to function. Correctly. Yeah, I mean, he was. He didn't drink a drop during the week. So he Friday was a. Saturday. He was a functionally functioning social drinker, is what he wanted to say. Which, if you want to call that an alcoholic, I suppose you can. But you, could he not go a weekend without going and getting drunk? At that time, probably couldn't have. Probably not. So, Friday night, done with work, I'm going to go drink the whole weekend, and did he come home? Yeah, well, not always, but sometimes I wouldn't see him till Sunday, but sometimes he might roll in, you know, early Saturday morning type thing, mm-hmm. but, you know, there, I'm sure there's some things that come up with my PTSD from that, mm-hmm. but... It How was, old were you? I was, when I, li- when I lived with him, I was 13, so eighth grade. Wow. Freshman the age where you need your parents the yes. most. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's everything that um, actually is related to. And so what do we have about? Three, about four of them. Three or four yeah. of them. But also... Those three or four things can be with anybody. So, right. Um, don't we? We really don't know if it's with the PTSD or not. So, so do we have to finish something? Is there something that you want to add to to help other people that are going through PTSD? The you've gone through number one thing for me is you've having a support system and for me that you know right now that I I have a huge support system but the biggest person I lean on is my wife and just because how she can make me feel you know just being in presence of her Mm -hmm. and so that allows me to work on things that are harder for me to do the like the anxiety the social anxiety and the large crowds, and that I continually push that continually. Without her, there's no way I could do it. And so now we have a fourth person that kudos to them. Yeah. And it, it, it is 
I wouldn't say absolutely necessary, but I would highly recommend, you know, counseling. And and it's just not on for PTSD. Yeah, sure. I mean, even everyday life. Sure. It it is. Nice we all to, need somebody. It is nice to be able to have somebody to throw your thoughts off of and to see. Am I thinking right? Am I thinking wrong? Just because sometimes our thoughts can lead us the wrong way, and and that's where I struggle still to this day because I can get a little upset, and even though I know what's happening, I still get upset enough to where I go off on a tangent, mm-hmm. as and I call them. What, <laughs> yeah, so what is a tangent to you? Uh, thank God currently, you know, it's a lot of yelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's usually a lot of cussing involved. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually not directed towards any one person. Okay. Uh, it, it is... Just, and I guess instead of talking about things when I should be, it's being I'm keeping it inside, and then something sets me off, and then it all comes out. And and I know from my counseling that that is totally wrong. And just because, for me, I don't some of the things I don't want to talk about, and, and it's not a bad thing. It's just because I didn't think they were important enough, but later they're coming back up and okay I guess they were important enough and so it's still a learning process for me it's never ending Uh, what set me off a year ago not necessarily sets me off today Um, so when you are currently going through these tantrums or whatever um after they're over with, are you learning from them? Yes. Each one of them? I try to. I, I try to learn. Uh, I, my most recent one that I had was Sunday. Mm-hmm. and This Sunday? This past Sunday. Okay. And my wife was joking with me, and I knew she was joking with me, but it set me off because I remembered something in my past of something me and my ex-wife went through and that set me off and I couldn't come back from it but and you did apparently yes so what, what I done what, I took okay. myself out of the situation after I run my mouth for a little while which I shouldn't have done that mm-hmm. but I went outside and worked it off and cleared my mind and I come so back inside. you mean like you physically were working physically working and so when you were physically working, were you going through what you had done through your mind? Yes. Okay. And so do you apologize when something like that happens or? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if I truly think that it you know, deserves an apology, mm-hmm. I will. Uh, How do we decide that? that that's the bad part. Mm-hmm. You know, it's me that decides that. And some, some people think they deserve apology and, and I don't. And that's probably wrong on my part, just because of, because when I speak, I'm brutally honest. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that's not always good. I know that as a person. But. Just because there's words that we can't take back. Exactly. But for me, 
I feel that if I've said them, I mean them. And always. Ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, yes. Yeah. And and they're they're not always kind words. And but from I guess that's one of my coping mechanisms that mm -hmm. I've decided. Okay, this is the way I've got to be, and it's probably more protecting me than anything. Without uh, delving further into to the rabbit hole on that, I, I just because I haven't, I probably should. But that's just like what I keep telling myself. And so, if your wife comes to you after one of your episodes and says, "You really hurt my feelings. I feel like you owe me an apology, and you don't feel like you owe an apology." You just don't do it, or do you just talk about it? I, I, I will talk about it, mm -hmm. and, I, and I'll explain to her, you know, why I you know don't feel that there's an, an, an apology necessary, mm -hmm. and and sometimes whenever the during the talk, you know, my wife she has good valid points, but in my mind, I don't owe an apology. And so, therefore, I won't give one. Oftentimes, they're probably well-deserved apologies. But, again, you know, I, I say that I didn't think that I should give one. And so that tends to have a little bit of a, a rift sometimes because she does feel, you know, that she needs to apologize too, and I don't always do it. So then how do you end the... I don't know if you want to call it an argument, but how kind does of it... a, one of them agree to disagree moments. You know, I I duly note why she's upset mm -hmm. type thing, and I will try to change my future behavior to not have that happen again. Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't doesn't mean that I'm going to give an apology. And so then she accepts that. Seems to be. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that you know, it seems I, I would. I would hope that she knows that for when I apologize, that I truly do mean it, and I don't want it to be you know some half-assed apology just because you know she feels that it's deserved. I, I truly want it to be heartfelt. And I agree with that because we we know the difference. You know, if you're going to keep doing the same thing over and over again and then apologizing for it, then we don't even believe you're sorry. Right. So. And that's what I don't want to happen. And I guess the, the little things that we go through, I, I would hope that it's a, a different struggle each time. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I'm making the same mistakes. Uh, and, and it's just that, you know, it is just a mistake. I, you know... We are human. We, we err, and I can only uh, live for what's happening now and look forward to the future. I, my past made me who I am. I've There's some work that I've still got to work on, and I'll continually to work on it. But for me, partly me, still, mostly my family. I'll, I continue to work so that I'm not that the unpleasant asshole that I was a decade ago and never want to be in that bad place again. 
because it, it was not a happy place. I like my happy place now, and I have I've grown so much in the six years that I've been with my current wife, and I look forward to many more to see where I can go. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Thank you um, for having me. And I really hope that we can get this out to a lot of people that don't understand what PTSD is and what people go through. And hopefully I'll be able to talk to somebody else to see their side of what they see in you. If not, that's fine too. You've given us a lot of information and I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you.